From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, our show where sports and statistics and business all collide together. This is Eric Bravno, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm hosting today with my friend, colleague, nine-year collaborator, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, as we always do, um, today we have both a open segment that Adi and I have created our rapid-fire list that I'm going to talk to Adi about. Um, on the second half of our show today, we have John Sears, who's a special advisor for the L.A. Dodgers, who's also worked in the NBA. So we'll talk to him about what he's doing in baseball, what he did in basketball, and kind of the differences between the two. So lots to talk about. So Adi, uh, great to be with you here on the show today. Yeah, certainly exciting. Just the two of us today. It is. All right. Well, I've got a long laundry list and let's try to spend, I don't know, two, three minutes on each. Um, and of course, we're going to talk about it, of course, from a statistical perspective. Obviously, the thing I think we have to start with is, of course, the NBA game that happened last night. Obviously, the Miami Heat uh, defeating the Celtics in Boston in game seven. Um, and of course, the streak continues. Now it's over 151 of teams that have lost the first three Um the thing I thought about, and I'd love your thought about this, is if you had asked me before the game, and actually ESPN, for example, had the um, Celtics as an 83% chance to win the game. Um, given the degree of, let's call it, non-stationarity, like maybe the Celtics started out poor and got better, we could call it momentum. They were hot. Um, you could look at their priors. They were the two seed and won about 10 more games or 12 more games during the season than the uh, Miami Heat, plus they had home court. How big do you think all of those things were? We want to call it non-stationarity, momentum, priors, home court. Like, forget the outcome for a second. Before the game, given it's 3-3, would you have put it at basically 85-15, to or does that seem out of whack even given those factors? Okay, so I don't think it's out of whack, although I think that 85% is probably too high, almost, almost as if you, no matter what your models um, say, because all these things are implicitly, when they're modeled additive, you kind of add them up or multiply them or whatever you're, you're, you are doing. Yet at the end of the day, you don't like numbers that are too large. So it's kind of like, uh, okay, let's, let's run them together. Home field advantage by itself is usually a 60-40. Then, then you talk about the, 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 uh, the season and you talk about the three wins in a row and you talk about, all the things that suggest 85, but if it gets to 85, knock it back a little bit. That, that would have been my approach. Yeah. So I, I think I agree with you. I just felt it just seemed way out of whack to have it somewhere in the 85 to 15 range. So let's continue on. Let's stay in the NBA. Um, it's what I'm calling rest versus rust. So now we have a finals that's starting on Thursday. Right. Miami Heat just played game seven, but they still have three days rest. It's not like they have no rest, but the Denver Nuggets won't have played for something like 10 days. So, A, if you want to give a 30 second opinion on which team from a purely rest versus rust perspective you'd rather have or and also how might you empirically study this issue? Because on the on, on concept, you could have it's no problem on the X axis, just have the number of days of rest. On the y-axis, you could have the win percentage, but we might argue that that, in, that analysis is too simple analysis. So how would you think about it? Okay, so let me answer it quickly. I think everything that I've heard from our experts who we've had on our show over the many years talking about basketball says that it's not so much rest, it's the time. Um, uh, you don't typically play the same team over and over again during the season, uh, except in the playoffs. And I think all that time allows the analysts, the, the videotape watchers, the strategists, the opportunity to kind of dig in and really understand the team that they're playing against. And that I think is helpful. Um, beyond but of that, course, the Miami think- Heat could have said to themselves, if we win, let's just have our other team. Uh, let's split our team in two. Half will focus yeah, on the yeah. Celtics. Half will focus on the Nuggets. And let's just figure this out, right? Okay, I'll, I'll ask you as a business school professor. You think it happens that way? Or no way. Not, so not with go. the game seven coming <laughs> up. They, they got to no win chance. that game. Uh, but I'll, I want to address your other question, which is the, almost the modeling question. How would you how would you measure it? In theory, you, it's a variable you pop into the model. Um, the problem, of course, is that these models are so underpowered. There's so few observations. That was my and question. The sig- and the signal effect can't be very big. So good luck measuring it. I think ultimately it's just a fodder for us to chat and talk about and not really ever know the exact answer. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up an important point, which is it might, as I said, why don't you just put on the x-axis the number of days of rest on the y-axis, the win percentage and model it. And then you start to realize for so many lengths of rest, you have very sparse data. It's probably not a massive effect to begin with. And then if you really want to be non-parametric, which literally means you're going to have a different, let's call it intercept for every different day of rest, you're even less powered than if you put some sort of parametric, like linear or inverted U shape or other type of form on it. Let me just throw in an unbelievable nerdy thing to say. Um, also, days of rest is highly correlated with other factors that go in that model. And then the nerd observation is what we call variance inflation factor, meaning right. that when you have highly correlated observations, the uncertainty, the variance um, tends to get inflated, which means it's very hard to measure an effect size because the standard error is just bigger and therefore uh, an effect size and the Z scale or the standardized scale is just going to end up being um, harder to, to, to ascertain whether it's statistically real. Well, another way, another way you're also saying it's a simple example would be days of rest is probably correlated with the strength of the team and all the other things that mm-hmm. measure the strength of the team. And therefore teams that are just better will also have better measurement of that betterness and have days of rest in the model. And so that's where you get, that would be a simple example of yep. where there would be yep. correlation amongst them. Well, let's stay in the NBA. I want to now go to game six for a second of the Celtics uh, versus Heat series and Derek White's put back at the end of the game. So I want to ask you if the following analysis is okay, and if not, what's wrong with it? So let's imagine someone wanted to say, what's the probability that happened? Okay. Could someone do the following? First, there's three seconds left. I've got to first compute the probability that Marcus Smart gets off a shot. Then Marcus Schott's shot has to miss. It has to miss in a certain way off the rim to give a certain amount of time left to Derek White. There has to be some probability that Derek White gets the rebound, some probability that he makes it. Let's imagine you just model. I think you can see where I'm going. Let's say we just model this as a sequence of events. Is it okay just to compute the marginal probability of each of those, multiply it all together, and then we get the probability of A and B and C and D? Can we just do that? You can, but it's wrong because that's really what people care about, right? You know, it's it's not like we want to know what we really want to know is what's the probability that they that they of course make that shot after having missed the first one. I think that's fundamentally what we're really looking at. And there's many many ways for that to happen, and each one of them are going to have very very low probability. So just because you saw one means that doesn't mean that 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 probability that you can calculate there technically, given what you what you've observed, really has the meaning that you wanted to have which is, look, uh, something insane happened. Well, every, every actual event in the world, when you actually work out its probability, has extremely low probability. Um, really, question is, did we see something that, that is more than just memorable, which obviously it was? Was it some sort of craziness that happened there that you can expect to wait you know, hundreds of years before you see again? And that I'm not so sure that calculation is relevant for. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, which is any sequence of lots of events concatenated together has low probability. But that's not actually the question, You, as you said, you want to answer. You want to answer the question is, let's say, given the shot missed, what's the probability that there would have been a score or a putback in the last half of a, or three-tenths of a that's second? Right. There's lots of sequences that I have to mm-hmm. add up. It could be Jason Tatum, who was flying in, tips it in. It could have been yeah. someone gets fouled. There's all kinds of options. Each one of them may have low probability, but there could be, I'm, I'm literally making this up, there could be 40 of them, each with low probability, that I have to add them all up, and it's still a low number, but it's not as low as just that single sequence that happened. Uh, you know, I was just going to make, a, uh, make an observation, because I just read uh, a really fascinating, fun article by, by Neil Payne talking about the, the hockey playoffs, and he pointed out that the pair of teams playing in the, and for, the, for the Stanley Cup um, have a very low probability of making the playoffs jointly. Uh, it's, it's well less than 1%, um, one of the highest in the, and since they've been having... Of making the finals, you mean? Of making the finals. Both yeah. teams are, were, were outside chances to make it. I think it's Vegas and, and Florida, right? So it can, combination is extremely small. And yet, on the other hand, there's so many teams out there with low chances. And, that, and the real question is, what's the probability that one of those, or the, one of those pairs of low-chance teams makes it, makes it to, the, to the finals? And I think that's not that small. When you ultimately look at it, I think you framed it framed it the right way. And actually, it's the perfect segue to my next rapid fire question. Might as well go to hockey then. So, um, you, as you just mentioned, uh, the Panthers are in the finals. The Vegas Knights are in the finals. 
It's a 92-point team, which is not actually a very good playoff hockey team, versus Vegas, which was 111 points, which is a strong team. But just so you know, I think it was they were tied for third or fourth best out of the 16 teams. Um, my question to you is, do you think that we'll ever get to the point where there's a end-of-season metric? Like, the 92 includes points, as you always say. Um, every win is a win. It adds up to the same number at the end of the season. But maybe we really need an end-of-season strength metric that would say something about, yeah, Florida won 92 points, but in the last 10 games plus the playoffs, or maybe Vegas won 111 points, but actually, do you think we'll ever get to the point where we kind of have a, let's call it a moving window metric, where we can actually just compute some sort of performance strength based on the last X number of games that actually is reflective of current level of performance? I mean, it's easy to state it, but how would you determine the window size and how would you determine how much strength they have? It's a great problem. And I would venture to say that our gambling compatriots have spent a lot of time and energy doing just that and are probably as good as you can get. No doubt that the people who are betting and putting real money on the line at the outcomes of these events have spent the time to figure out what kind of moving average or or exponential yeah. weighting function needs to be applied. Uh, I would, I, and I think that's that, but you have to ask who else would have done it. It's uh, maybe your casual fan who's good at statistics might've thought about it. I haven't read anything to do it, but I think that that's a great question for us to bring back in detail and, and maybe kind of compare sports. I think that's a, that's a fun thing that we all would like to do. Um, which sport should, would be the most affected by some sort of recency um, observation. We know we do it in college football. It's a big deal in college football. Absolutely. Um, I think we do it a little bit, but a much lesser extent in the NFL. But I don't even know. I wouldn't even begin to know how to answer that question for the NHL. Do you think, let me ask you a question. Just, I'll just build off your last comment. Do you think there's any argument for what I called a discrete window function? Like I'm going to use the last X days. I'm going to treat them equally, but not day X plus one going back versus an exponentially weighted decay, which says everything has some influence, even if it becomes smallish after a certain amount of time. Which do you think if you if I asked you, Adi Weiner, to you know, do it yourself or lead a student team, would you start with a fixed, uh, fixed but unknown window with weight in that window and no weight out? Or would you do something that's more a smooth, exponentially weighted time decayed version? Well, it's going to be the latter. I'm a Bayesian model averager, um, Eric, and that's what it is. Essentially, you're, you're weighting each of the windows um, and each of them comes up with an estimate and an exponential weight will average them all together, but not equally. And that's really what I think is the right way to hedge. And you can't honestly throw out that early data. And of course, one of the things is that you're trading off is you're trading off ability to do well against anything that nature might throw at you, but you end up losing a little bit if you had made a, a proper guess, right? So that's, that's one of the reasons why you would occasionally be outperformed by a fixed window. But I think in expectation, a priori, the right thing is the exponential average, weighted average. All right. Let's go to two other sports before we get to the important one, which is baseball. We'll get to that in a second. Um, I noticed something else in golf this week, and I just want your opinion on this. Um, I noticed this again. I think it's I'm going to say it's the third time in the last 10 tournaments. So Scotty Scheffler, who I believe is still he might if he's not number one in the world, maybe John Rahm's number one, maybe Scheffler's number two. Um, He came in second again. Now, there's nothing wrong with second, but it ain't first. And. You know, it reminds me, people always talk about the 18 majors that Jack Nicholas won, which was impressive, right? But I don't know if, I, I know we've talked about this, Stata. You know, he has 19 second place finishes too. And so I started to think, I don't think Tiger Woods has, you know, he won, I think it's 82 or 83 tournaments. He doesn't have 50 second place finishes. There's no way. He even has 20 second place finishes, no chance. So is there any chance that, Scotty Shuffler continuing to come in second. Do you have any concern that like this is an indicator of he can't actually he's coming up short in tournaments? Is there any way this is a not a I don't call it a bad sign, but not a good sign? Well, I'm going to ask turn around to you because you know more about the individual tournaments than I surely do. Um, does he come up to second or down from one on the di- on uh, when he finishes? And I think that matters. Yeah, I, it's think, some, I, think, I agree. It's some of both. Uh, this tournament, he shot, well, 
He had a chance to win in the last four holes. He didn't. Um, I think half the tournaments I'm referring to, he wasn't first and didn't win. The other half, he was. He came from behind and didn't quite get there. Yeah, so that's kind of what you'd have to look at to see whether that that balance makes sense given a certain model about about. I think it's hard to reason um, using Tiger as an example because when he was on, he was just so much better that it was natural for him to go into the final and win, um, leading and, and just win. Yeah, I think we've I talked think, about 44 yeah. and two when leading or tied going into the final round of a tournament, which I think most people actually, I think it's the second most impressive thing. I forget how many it is, but like he made something like, I don't know, 150 straight cuts or something like that, which was that, that, that record will never uh, ever be broken. Um, let me ask you a question now about baseball. And I've got a bunch of them. Uh, let me start with the first one. I've never actually heard this talked about because I, and I can understand why. Do you think there's asymmetric regression to the mean? So what I mean by that is the, the concept of the regression to the mean is that, you know, someone's um, observed performance is a true performance plus error. And teams that are performing well tend to have positive errors. Teams that are not performing well tend to have negative errors. And negative errors don't persist, nor do positive errors. So we get this phenomenon of called regression to the mean. Just so all of our historians among us know, that that equation is sometimes called the true score equation. It was developed by Thurstone in the 1920s. It's the classic measurement error equation. I was thinking about baseball, and I was thinking the Oakland A's, who are heading towards a historically bad season. Is it possible that there's, and I've never heard us talk about this in nine plus years, do you think there's an asymmetric regression to the mean effect? Like good teams might regress back more than bad teams will regress up. Okay, well, uh, (laughs) um, interesting. Um, I'm going to back away from that a little bit because when you do regression to the mean, you have to ask, what what is the mean you're regressing to, right? So the, the simple approach is, just regress to the overall mean. And then, in fact, what ends up happening is you have a certain amount of regression to the mean. And then oh, yeah, and the farther the most, your distance, the more you regress back. Yeah, I mean, in, in actual amount, the, the percentage is the same. The amount, actually, people are listening to know this. The amount that you, re, that you retain is the correlation coefficient uh, on a standardized scale. Right. And the amount that you regress is, is one minus the, the, the correlation coefficient. And so um, if there's a if there's a person, if there's complete um, prediction, there's and there's no regression because there's no measurement error. Then you don't you don't regress at all to the mean. It's like nothing, um, and so one minus r would be zero. You wouldn't regress at all. Um, so the real question is, what do you regress to? And so the question is, when you're dealing with a top team um, and they've done really well, you if they're a top team like the Rays that you they may be coming out of out of like the air to some degree, you might want to regress them down quite a bit. For looking to the end and the and the Oakland A's there, I don't think we, we expected them to be poor, um, but I'm not sure we expected them to be this poor. So you typically regress towards um, a preseason estimate of their quality. Right. And so that's really what, what I think it answered the question. Um, and so if they're if we really thought the A's were as bad as they are, then we may not regress very much. And that's what you would call asymmetric regression to the mean um, prior to the season. I'm still betting that they're going to be terrible obviously they've been so bad right now they can't even overcome that um but i don't think they're going to be as bad going forward as we've seen so far even let's just but let's just make our predictions here are they do they do they reach the magic number of 40 do they make was the 62 mets do they win as many do they win 40 yes that's my prediction yes okay i'm going no but we'll see how no i'm going no we'll see how (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, let's let's go on to another topic in baseball. So just recently, um, Mike Trout passed Joe DiMaggio for career home runs. Um, he's likely to get to 500. He's also likely to be easily 500. He's also likely to be one of the top five war players of all time. Just give our listeners a sense. How great an all-time great do you think Mike Trout is? Is he Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Barry Bonds? Hank Aaron, um, you know, is he that great or is he more of a, or is Ted Williams great? I mean, how great do you see Mike Trout in the historical pantheon of baseball? Uh, I'd like to hear your number two, but I'm going to say, no, he's not in the top 10, but I think an absolute case could be made for 11 to 20. Yeah. I think I would put him in the same place. I, I don't think he's, 
as great as some of those, you know, literally the top, top, top tier pantheon. But he's a first tier, first ballot Hall of Famer easily. But I don't put him in the greatest of all time. No. I mean, but the real question for us is, like, why do we naturally do that? And one of the reasons, if you look through the people that you that you listed, obviously, we'll take off the 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 Barry Bonds and the and the Babe Ruths and the Willie Mazes, um, for which it's or the Ted Williams. But that, what's the next five? Um, I, I have to say one of the things is that is that you don't have that individual season three or four or five times. being just like crazily good um, that it's it, Mike Trout is year in and year out is offering, you know, seven to nine war, right? Fantastic. Um, and he does it at all levels. He hits home runs, but not more than not more than Aaron Judge or even close. He gets RBIs, but not that many. I don't think he breaks 100 very many. Um, right. And, you know, he walks a ton, which is great for his team, but no one around him drives him home. He plays, <laughs> you know, really, you know, great, great, great defense in an important position, but he's not Willie Mays out there or, or even Harrison Bader. Um, and maybe he was in his first couple of years. Um, so one of the things I think the real question is, to be that top tier, that top, 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 top tier. He's top tier. Let's get, the, get the, out of the question. Right. But the top of the top tier, don't you have to be like crazy good at at least a couple of individual characteristics too? We talked about this last week. If you remember on the show, I said, you know, would you, how, what do you, how do you detect outlying this in a large multidimensional space where someone could be a 10 on a bunch of dimensions and five on others and someone else is an eight or nine on every dimension. And that's kind of Mike Trout. Um, so in the last 10 seconds or so, Adi, um, you and I both have to be celebrating Aaron Judge, who, by the way, just for our stats, for our listeners, um, in the month of May, he's only played 19 games. He has 11 home runs, 24 RBIs, hitting 355. And he's, again, someone that has definitely reached that plateau. Well, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, We have our interview with John Sears from the L.A. Dodgers coming up. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Uh, Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business all intersect. Again, my name is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by this interview with my colleague, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. As all of you know, some combination of us, Cade uh, Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week here on SiriusXM Wharton Moneyball. And one of the things that we four hosts for the last nine plus years have always talked about, the favorite part of our show, is we get to interview people that are actually in the field working on problems with analytics and typically applied to sports teams. And Adi, of course, this session is no different. Uh, We're thrilled to be joined by John Sears. Uh, John is a special advisor for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Sorry, John, but you're here with two Yankees fans. But whatever, we got to work for somebody. Uh, John is responsible for, and I love this quote, up-leveling the quality of the team's quantitative models, advising on strategy and recruiting talent, uh, prior to the Dodgers, he worked for the our home team, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Minnesota Timberwolves, and most recently as VP as VP of Basketball Analytics. And he also spent time in the tech industry at Uber and Motive, where he led data science and analytics functions. And he has a not surprising background for given what he does. He has a BS in computer science from Carleton College, an MS in OR from Stanford. Um, John, with that long intro, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. I'm really excited to talk. Well, there's so many things we could talk to you about, but let's maybe just start from the beginning. Um, to the degree that you can talk about some level of detail, um, what do you do for the Dodgers? And, um, you know, how do you see the analytics function playing a role within a sports organization? Yeah, absolutely. So it's I find this kind of stuff super interesting. You know, it's it's almost like organizational design. Uh, and at a really high level, I'll give you the first answer first and then do the second. So sure. what I do really is, is help to get deep on our models. Um, I am effectively a super senior individual contributor. So I'm in there helping to write code and specify, debug, uh, iterate upon models day to day, um, you know, basically pick the top couple ones in terms of leverage and, yeah, work with our full-time uh, ICs on that kind of stuff. And yeah, so it's it's really um, uh, a big piece is deeply technical. You know, I do, we do kind of bi-weekly research talks. I give a bunch of feedback at that point. 
Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm actually contributing day to day in some of our, in some of our model development. The other big piece is, yeah, advising on strategy, going deep on trying to understand, you know, sort of the pros and cons of uh, player to sit, player personnel decisions, in-game tactics, that kind of stuff based off of sort of, especially the quant models that our group has built, you know, in terms of like interpretation, trying to understand the domains over which they'll be valid, that kind of stuff. And then the third piece is is really recruiting. You know, it's it's the way to, it's the it's the way to have the most long term leverage. Uh, I think in my role is just to help us stock the pond with amazing talent. And so yeah, that's kind of that's my day to day. It's it's sort of an interesting role, and I don't know that there's so many other folks in the industry doing this. But I think that's one of the cool things about the Dodgers is to sort of segue into the other pieces, like from an organizational standpoint. Um, yeah, how did like really like how do we make decisions? Well, we we try to we try to build up sort of uh, domain expertise from a variety of lenses. So you think about that in terms of uh, scouting. So you'll have amateur scouts who are highly devoted to to understanding like high school players and projecting them into the future, college players, etc. Pro scouting, um, typically regional based. Uh, international. And then we have folks who are looking at data all day. Um, so that's, you know, my team that I'm most closely associated with is the quant group. Um, we build models to try to understand things that we can't directly observe from data. We have uh, a sort of a more typical analytics team that's doing really ad hoc deep dives on particular decision points that we face. Uh, we have a sports science group, you know, we're trying to work with player performance to help to improve things like mechanics and repeatability of motion. Uh, and then we have like bedrock engineering groups uh, to build all of sort of the infrastructure upon which all these other functions are, are, are built. And so, yeah, that's kind of the, like the whirlwind tour to front office of, uh, of our team. And I think a lot of the top teams in baseball. Yeah. Before I turn it over to Adi, he and I will probably alternate here. Um, I find it interesting that, it's not surprising to me that you have an engineering group that supports all three. That's quite common. It is surprising to me, maybe a little bit, that there are three groups. Like one group is more of a, let's call it statistical modeling group. One is an analytics group. And, you know, uh, I forget what the third group was. Maybe there's a sports science. Yeah, sports science. That in some sense, they're not. Well, I think it's extremely sophisticated that there are three groups all touching on the use of data and empirical models. Yeah, you know, it's a in a lot of ways, it's a luxury to have this kind of setup. Um, I've been in organizations where it was just a quote unquote analytics group. And, you know, right. who are the people doing data engineering, writing, you know, R scripts or Python uh, functions to pull in XML data off of a, an FTP server on the league office. And they're the ones doing uh, matchup analysis for understanding like player A versus player B. And they're the ones building the, you know, Bayesian hierarchical models to try to infer latent talent. And like to find expertise uh, co-occurring in all of those domains is impossible. And so you end up with a lot of frustration and, or, I mean, or typically both uh, along with just like not quite as good of a product as you could have. And so, yeah, we, we've invested pretty heavily in specialization, um, which I think has, has been amazing. And, you know, the truth is you guys are uh, not just sports people. Like this is super common in industry. I've been at like, yeah, various tech companies and you know what data scientists hate the most is, having to pull away from their modeling work in order to answer some yeah. sales VPs random question about like last month's average blah, 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 per yada, yada. And so, yeah, I think the, the Dodgers, and this is, this way precedes me. They, they really understood that pretty early on. And Andrew Friedman, our team president kind of constructed this organizational structure very. Yeah. I think one of the things I'll add to that, and then I'll just I'll let Adi ask the next question, was I think the biggest mistake I made when I set up the analytics group at the Eagles was not separating out a coach wants an answer to this question from someone that's building models. And then the modeler person would have to lift their head up from the code they're writing and thinking about the model to say, okay, so 
how many yards per scrimmage does this person get and what's this? And then so a lot of these are what I'll call empirical questions that can be done by a careful exploratory analysis. And the other part, as you said, I think John, by the way, Adi wins the award. He may be our first guest that has mentioned Bayesian hierarchical models for estimating latent preference. I'm just saying this is our language, Adi, but to have John talk about that, we I mean, both like, wow, this man is speaking our language. But Adi, let me turn it over to you for the next question. Yeah, so I actually would like to try to make it a little bit more concrete for not only for Eric and I, but also for our listeners. Um, you talk about modeling and, and you actually give us a kind of a big overview. There's very basic modeling re- related to say day-to-day stuff. The coaches want to know matchup and they got to play this player. They got to play that player. They got to bring this pitcher, depending on the situation. I've seen a lot, a lot of teams invest heavily in that. And then you talk about sort of big picture things that you might think of Bayesian hierarchical modeling or some sort of uh, project that you'd, you'd like to think of in the long term. Can you be maybe a little bit more specific for us to, to give us maybe two baseball questions um, that, that illustrate those differences? Um, and also talk about like maybe in the Dodgers, how much do they devote to those big picture problems? And are they different from teams, other teams who I think for the most part don't have the resources? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you are correctly calling me a little bit on my uh my use of the term modeling. I think, you know, it's very fair to say like any sort of statistical uh, uh, interpretation of data is modeling, right? And so like, I think it's, it's, it's completely reasonable to say yes, like the, for the, the folks on the analytics side uh, who are doing, let's say like a, a t-test over some ad hoc uh, question, that, that is modeling. And I don't mean to like pull away from that. Um, I think of it more as maybe I should, I should probably call it predictive modeling or sort of, you know, latent inference, something like that, that we have a group devoted to that and a group devoted to deep diving on ad hoc decision making. So let's give some examples. So on the quant side, one of the things we and every other team in the world spends a lot of effort and energy on is trying to understand uh, player talent and make projections about the future. Right. And so, you know, how exactly we want to characterize that sort of is for every team is a little bit of a secret sauce, but at a high level, you want to try to understand like in baseball, how well will this player do versus let's say this batter do versus right-handed pitchers or versus left-handed pitchers next year, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. Um, Or in the case of even like, you know, high school players who are evaluating seven to 10 years from now when they're ostensibly peaking. Um, that's the kind of model that like the quant group tries to work on is so both understand this, this latent like skill, which is, you know, ability to hit right-handed and left-handed batters. And by the way, there's correlation there and you can start to, you know, we can all begin to sort of, uh, get the taste for like the really fun structural modeling choices that you have to make in order to sort of capture as much, uh, of the signal that you can from the, the extremely small amount of data that we get. Um, and then, yeah, uh, project like so. Yeah, it's basically like that aspect of like how do you characterize their talent now based on everything you've known, and how do you try to project it into the future? So that's the domain of the quant stuff. Is really so like, let me ask you. Yeah, let, and, let me ask you. Let me ask you a specific question to that, John. Because I'm sure is our listeners uh, will be interested in this. Do you guys do more? I don't think this is giving away any secret sauce. Do you do more what we might consider traditional statistical modeling? Like, for example, let's call it an ELO model, or you have some sort of age curve, some sort of let's call it parametric statistical model. Yeah, yeah. Or, or do you more do what? Well, let's call it when you started one year out, two year out. That made me think you're building computer science like machine learning models that are using out of sample validation, and maybe you guys are fitting neural nets or some other sophisticated types of model. Or is the answer both? The answer is the, the answer is both. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's super interesting. So let's let's zoom out a little bit. Like in the end, we're trying to we're trying to extract. Like I, I almost think of it like physically. We're trying to like squeeze out all of the the signal that we can from this again, just like really really sparse weak data set. And so how do we do so? It, it's going to depend on on how much sort of juice there is in the rag to squeeze, right? And so like for some things. Yeah, we can uh, fall back upon what I think of as like data nihilism. So let's build a a big computer vision or uh, a boosted tree model to try to make these projections because we have the support of millions or tens of millions of independent data points off of which to observe. Um, The truth is those uh, applications are fewer than you'd like. And so you do end up 
tending to need to bring as much of your sort of uh, uh, inductive bias, let's say, as you can to the models. And so that's where it, it becomes much more common to fall back upon these yeah, structural statistical models in which you really have to be extremely thoughtful about yeah how you characterize the relationships between these variables and yeah i think that that's what's so wonderful about our stuff is that there's not a lot of environments i think in business where like you get to employ those like kind of really interesting models like much of the tech world just does have like internet scale data which ping 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 and like just yeah you fit it you fit a model off the last three months and like you've got everything you're going to need um yeah we we do we we do a combination of both we hire folks with expertise in typically in one or the other. Um, and yeah, we try to, as best we can, pick the right, like right size the model for the problem and the data that can support it. So, so John, one of the things that's really developed in, in uh, baseball, in all sports, but baseball particularly, is the access of high, high quality um, call it just general, just a general rubric tracking data, not necessarily yes. where the, where the, where the players are, but also the balls and how far they go and what angle and, and you're getting this at, at, at probably at different levels of uh, performance, not just in the major leagues, but also in the minors and also in collegiate. And you're probably getting it from the Dominican Republic, maybe in some capacity. Um, my, I guess my question is if I were to try to say pro- project baseball talent, latent baseball talent into the future against your right handers, but whatever it is using just what I observe, um, how far off would I be compared to what the experts who have that access to the data? In other words, how much juice are you getting from all that that good stuff that the public doesn't get? And by the way, before you answer, John, let me just say, this is why we're also a business show, because this is what we always talk about, the value of information, right? One of the most traditional statistical problems, which is how much is that data set worth? Like, should I be buying it? Should I be tracking it? How much value is it? Or how much does the um, the person without the full information, the academic, like Adi and I don't have that you, meaning you no. have this rich data, do have. You know, it, it, leaves, it leaves us as, as fans. That's the best part about our job is we get to be kind of somewhat experts, but also fans. And we get to watch our teams make decisions. And we sometimes scratch our head going, based on what I'm able to see, I don't, that doesn't make sense. Yet they're doing it and either they're dumb or they have something that we don't have. And that's basically my, my question. What do you got? And how does it, what yeah. does it add? So I want to say one thing off the front, which is that I don't think any team is fully extracting even 50% of the value that is contained within the tracking data, right? Like if you think of this in terms of like of like a metric tons of information, there's a, a lot in there. Now, it's not as much as you'd like, right? Like there's a ton of serial correlation in like the movement of a player or ball through space, right? So it's, you don't actually get 300 gigabytes per game or whatever in the way that you would from, let's say like a bunch of visits to a, homepage or something, but it, it, it's, it's a ton. And I don't think anyone's doing well. And that's why there is remains a, an arms race to find people who can operate upon it and help to extract that data. So like, you know, cheap call out, we're hiring. If, if that kind of uh, investigative modeling work is up your alley, please reach out, you know, uh, Jay Sears at LADodgers.com. Uh, but no, I think so there's a two-part answer, which is like, number one, I don't think that all the teams are fully getting the value out of it. So there remains less of a gulf between, let's say, play-by-play data and box score data with some, you know, whatever else is public uh, and a fully loaded tracking data-driven model. They're like, you're going to have, I don't know, like, let's call it like 80 to 90% correlation or something like that, maybe somewhere in that range. Um, I do think, though, at the at the bleeding edge, the the four or five teams ish that are really going after it are are finding pretty material discrepancy in like and all it takes is a few number of false positives eliminated or true positives identified for it to be a, a really good decision. So you talk about ROI, it's like okay, you know, what does this data set cost? And these things range into the low millions of dollars per year. Uh, but what is the sort of the distribution of potential uh, return? And it, you know, it's certainly skewed, but like, if you get, again, like if you make one of those good decisions off of it, that can save you $30 million right. over three years. 
Well, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Rado, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Uh, we're here talking to John Sears. John is a special advisor to the LA Dodgers, responsible for, and I'm going to use steal this quote, up-loving, up-loving the level, the quality of the team's quantitative models. He also advises on team strategy and, of course, recruiting talent. And he also gave out his email address for those that want to reach out, jsears at ladodgers.com. Um, what I'd like to work talk about next, John, is what you did prior to coming to uh, the Dodgers, which is work that you did from the Sixers and Timberwolves. Now, one of the things Adi and I, I don't know if we pride ourselves on, but I think we believe we could make some contribution to any sports team, assuming we do have some substantive knowledge. We have knowledge of statistics. Maybe let me, it's a two-part question. Let me start with the first part. Where do you see, I think we all agree, given our show is Moneyball, Probably analytics started in baseball, really what we would call analytics prior to it starting really in basketball. Where do you see the level of analytics and sophistication in the NBA versus the MLB today? Yeah, uh, there remains a huge difference, I would say. I got my start in basketball nearly 10 years ago, about 10 years ago. Um, and at that point, the biggest staffs were like five or six. Now, over that time, it's grown to maybe 10. I think, you know, your hometown Sixers, I think have around 10 people-ish doing that. Um, in baseball, though, it's 50, you know, like the top teams are really 5X larger. You know, probably, uh, yeah, more than 5X more sophisticated in terms of the extraction of of outcomes from it. Because it's, it's by the way, it's not just how many data people do you have, right? It's like, how well integrated are they into the decision process? Exactly. So I think baseball is, is, is way ahead. And like, when I was started with the Timberwolves, that was really what we aimed to do was effectively like, well, the way we pitched ownership was that we want to build the Tampa Bay Rays of the NBA, which is, you know, the Rays are one of the smallest payroll teams in baseball, but they have one of the largest, uh, analytics staffs, if you want to call it that R and D staffs and just uh, have fully devoted organizational uh, sort of power to, to like really extracting all of the value that they can out of that. And it's, it's worked remarkably well. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there remains a huge opportunity to, to go after it, to go after that kind of uh, thesis in the NBA. I don't know the NFL as well. I can say that you know, we were talking to a PhD from one of the better NFL teams a couple of years ago about coming over. And he was one of two people uh, at this, you know, perennial playoff teams uh, analytic staff. And so, yeah, I think uh, I, I think football is very hard for many reasons, but I would guess that, you know, a really principled chief executive who decided to go after it could see pretty big returns over a, a, you know, three to five year span. Well, we just placed one of Adi's students, Zach Drapkin, one of our former interns on the show, and also worked with my Zach on the NFL Big Data Bowl, which they won uh, with the Eagles. And we can tell you that nice. group is maybe five to seven people. Let me ask you one follow-up question, then I'll turn it over to Adi, which is, what do you think is portable from what you learned in the NBA to what you're doing in the MLB is everything portable or are there some things that are just like you had to kind of think of entirely differently? It's, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, let me put it that way. I think most things are almost everything is first order portable. Um, you know, like the, so much of it is the same, like small data, uh, things like player aging through time, modeling lots of, of time series that look somewhat similar and trying to discern like which, sort of like archetype the player's trajectory will look like that kind of stuff is is very similar however there are some really big differences under the under the hood you know like in basketball the quality of the competition that you face is is super varied and you really have to try to understand uh, both the quality of competition as well as like the quality of your teammates and so like it's this really continuous time continuous space problem where players can do anything they want within the rule set on the, on the field, on the court uh, in baseball. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's these coin flips. It's the bunch of uh, a Boolean or a multinomial outcomes, uh, batter versus pitcher type matchups, uh, ball versus fielder, base runner versus catcher or whatever. And so it, actually there isn't so like less of the energy needs to be focused on uh, trying to understand sort of things like player intent and uh, strategy. And it is much more about like, 
you know, how well can they hit the curveball or like what kind of velocity on their fastball can they maintain and, and, and locate. And so, yeah, I think I've gotten into a little, not, not bad trouble, but I've, I've put some egg on my face with trying to too quickly uh, port over intuition from basketball over to baseball where it, it hasn't always been appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, there's, I'd like to, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And I think there's some things that we've worked so hard in the NBA to understand that haven't been as much of a focus, perhaps because of the fact that it's inherently a different uh, structural problem. And so some of the things actually have actually been pretty useful and somewhat insightful. Let, let me, I want to actually want to drill down a little bit on basketball, but first I want to just point out one of the difficulties I've had trying to understand um, the contribution of analytics to basketball is that it's hard for me sitting where I sit to locate you know, success stories in baseball, you got success stories. You mentioned the race, Oakland A's before that. I can think about 10 yeah. problems for which analytics have really advanced what teams do and, and people who watch the game can see it so much so that we had to change the rules to, to, to walk away from some of those developments because they've made the game, you know, not so much fun. And after all, it is entertainment. Um, and in football, you do see questions. You see a fan who's interested in paying attention can see how analytics have made a difference. Obviously, basketball is a different game. They, they throw, free, they shoot three-pointers much more than they ever used to. And we like to say that's analytics, but it's not very advanced <laughs> to point out that three is a lot more than two, 50% more to be precise. But in your years of being in basketball and just looking at it even from where you sit now, what are the stuff that is from the inside that analytics have helped with um, and changed basketball that you wouldn't obviously see from just watching on TV? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately in the end, there's two groups of decisions, right? There's personnel decisions and in-game strategy decisions. So I think on the in-game strategy, I, I would push back on the thing about threes because like, yeah, it's it's trivial. However, for all many, many years, a less than efficient number of threes were shot. And so to have the organizational backbone that Houston really had in pushing for that is is admirable. And it, you know, it, it took a bunch of really smart people to do so. Um, yeah, but was, so, was that a management it, problem or was that an analytics? I mean, I would view that almost as a managerial problem rather than an analytics question. I think the, I think it's an analytics question in that Daryl and those folks had the conviction to push for it. You know, every other chief executive of every team has probably, well, not, I don't even want to say that. Some of them have uh, probably had an inkling in the back of their head that like, they weren't shooting enough threes, but none of them were strong enough, uh, had a strong enough belief in themselves or belief in their analysis to, to, to force the, the, not even the force, but like to convince the coach to, to do so. Cause I don't, by the way, I don't think Daryl like just, you know, Hey, you have to shoot more threes. Like I'm sure he was able to win the argument via, you know, uh, principal argumentation. Um, but yeah, I think the, the evidence that nobody else did it, is strong that like that was a, an analysis question because if if you were you know everybody here would pick up a two dollar bill on the street rather than a one dollar bill right but like nobody else in basketball was picking up the two dollar bills so yeah i think so that, so, the, so, the, yeah, so that's on the, another example i think on the in-game strategy tactic stuff is is lineups i think that teams put a lot of effort into understanding uh what will be advantageous lineups structurally and they use a lot of data to do that you get into a lot of issues with that and so that's where it comes into like you know doing well-principled ad hoc statistical analysis is pretty important you you certainly build models too but um they're they're so important that especially in the playoffs like you're doing a lot of a lot of sort of yeah ad hoc uh deep dives there um yeah. And then uh, on the personnel side, I think it plays out in a couple areas. So like one is the draft, you know, that's probably the single biggest one. Um, yeah. Every team has draft models. Most of them are modestly better than like, I'd say like, you know, sort of uh, historical average draft quality, I would bet, but few of them have been able to convince their decision makers to follow them. And I think it's, it's a really funny uh, sort of dynamic where, yeah, this has been a market inefficiency for many years, and yet it hasn't corrected itself. Um, yeah, I think uh, the other one is player personnel. Um, that one has gone. I think that, like, you know, when we were in Philly, we had Robert Covington, and he was a, a G League player. We picked him up. He did really – we thought he did really well, uh, but we were on a 10-win team. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not sure the league did, but 
his his uh his adjusted plus minus type metrics were always very strong and that got him paid by you know the next regime after we all left as well as got a lot of trade value over the years he's been traded multiple times for like you know once for jimmy butler along with a package once for a couple of first round picks so like the fact that the league caught up to robert covington despite him like not always passing the eye test i think is is pretty good evidence that this type of uh of modeling has infiltrated people's understanding and is is getting traded off of so john let me ask you in the last minute or two that we have let me ask you one final question let's imagine it's 2028 so it's five years from now and the three of us are still sitting here and trust me adi and i still plan on being here doing the radio show it's five years from now we're doing morton moneyball and we're interviewing and you say john remember when you were back with us in 2023 um we asked you, what do you think will be happening in the world of, let's call it for now, baseball analytics in the next five years? What are you most excited about? What are either the problems, the data, or the new statistical methods that are coming into baseball that's going to kind of wow us as we think going forward? So I, it's, I hate to always do this, but it's two things. One is there's, there's this sort of uh, secular trend towards generative AI, right? Everybody, all of us have played with ChatGPT and most of us were blown away by it the first time. And so, A, what does that unlock, right? Like, I think there's simple ones uh, that we can all kind of port over mentally, but like, what are the second order things that are now enabled by a thing that's able to be 90% or 110% of human reasoning over a, you know, a context window of 10,000 to 100,000 tokens? Uh, the second piece is, as we talked about earlier, is just the this inundation with tracking data as it's it's gone, as you said, like both uh, higher quality at the pro level. So we have 300 hertz skeletal tracking data. So like, you know, 30-ish landmarks on every player's body, um, the ball, et cetera, at 300 ticks per second. So like, what can you do with that? And then we talked about it too, in organ- across levels, like, as you start to get tracking data down into the minor leagues and the uh, college leagues. And, you know, at some point, I'm sure somebody's going to figure out a way to set up a stereoscopic array of like iPhones in the outfield of high school stadiums. And like, we're going to have good X, Y, perhaps better uh, data at like every single level possible. So like, what does that unlock and how can we build models off it? And so, yeah, that's, that's really, I think that the two big frontiers, coming up uh that remain you know and i'm sure there's something i'm sure something new will come online too um but yeah those are the ones that right now i think have like a ton of juice to be squeezed well john we'd like to thank you for joining us on Morton moneyball sharing us your current experience with the dodgers your work in the nba the differences between the two and what's coming forward so thank you again for joining us on Morton moneyball thanks so much this was a lot of fun so that has been uh, our show today uh, on behalf of myself and Adi Weiner, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. As we said, some combination of us, Kate Massey and, Adi, uh, and Shane Jensen are here every week. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We will see you next week here on Morton Moneyball. Morton Moneyball.